The Lifestylist, episode 30, featuring Dr. Andrew Hill. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Don't forget to click subscribe on your podcast player so you don't miss next week's episode number 31 featuring John Wineland, where we discuss sex, relationships, and intimacy. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain, Mr. Luke Story speaking. You'll notice I've turned on the fasten your seatbelt sign, so I'd like you all to remain seated while we enter the vortex known as the center of your mind. In today's episode, I'm interviewing a genius, a PhD neuroscientist by the name of Dr. Andrew Hill. And we're talking about something called neurofeedback, which is essentially a way that you can get computers to fix your damn brain. So I traveled out to his clinic in West LA and did one of my field recordings, which I love. I love walking in someone's place and setting up my gear and kind of capturing the moment, which is what we did. We also hooked up an EEG, a very powerful one, up to my dome and we found some pretty scary information about what's going on between my ears. Essentially, he told me that, uh, Luke, you've got Swiss cheese going on in there and uh, gave me some recommendations on how to fix it. No, but seriously, I was surprised to find, and you're going to hear within the interview, that uh, there's some very peculiar things going on with my brain. So hopefully I can actually get in there and do some work with neurofeedback and see if I can correct that. But it's a really fantastic technology. It's very cutting edge stuff. Um, Neurofeedback is very useful in the treatment of addictions, PTSD, ADD, and just optimizing your cognitive performance. So it can actually make you smarter and work harder, work faster, sleep better. I mean, it's really a fantastic technology. So it was great to sit down with someone who has such a depth of experience and knowledge about this particular subject. He's very like on the cutting edge of um, neuroscience and neurofeedback specifically. We also discussed the dangers and benefits of smart drugs. Dr. Hill was not too stoked on some of the things that I am ingesting on a regular basis. So we definitely have some differing um, experience and opinions there, but it was very interesting to get his take on that. And he's kind of a shamanistic dude. He's a scientist, but at the same time, he's spent time in South America and he's into Buddhism and he's a trippy guy. So we covered a lot of different territory. So this is one of those episodes that has a little something for everyone. So sit back, enjoy, and get ready to have your mind blown. Once you've recovered from this mental overload, I'd love for you to go to lukestory.com, see my homepage. You're going to see a little tab there that says join my tribe. That's where you can sign up for my newsletter. And every week I'm going to send you the show notes and details about every episode that I release. I'm also going to let you know when I'm on another podcast as a guest, or I put out some video content or something awesome. This is not a spammy, lame situation. This is me sharing all the work that I'm putting out with you for fun and for free. 
While you're at my site in the upper right-hand side, you're going to see a tab that says support the podcast. This is an opportunity for you to kick in a couple bucks, a donation, a pledge to help fund the show. It's a really great way for you to give back. I get emails all the time from people saying, oh my God, you're changing my life. The great guests, the great information. What can I do to thank you? How can I ever repay you, Luke? You know what? You don't have to do anything. An email is great. A mention on social media. I love that. But if you're a super fan and you want to keep it super real to the next level, throw in a couple bucks. It will help me with the editing and graphic design and running the website and all of the costs associated with bringing amazing episodes like this to you, the listeners. So thank you so much for being here and helping me to live my dream. Are you ready to sweat your way back to health, deeper sleep, and improved athletic performance? Do you want to burn around five, 600 calories for just sitting on your ass? I thought so. If you're sitting there nodding your head yes, then you need to check out Clear Light Saunas. Infrared saunas have been a part of my life for the past 15 years, and I use one on a regular basis. There is no better way to reduce inflammation, no faster way to detox, no quicker way to relax and get yourself into a parasympathetic nervous system state. It's like a forced meditation. It's the best thing ever. The issue is with a lot of these saunas on the market, you get bombarded with negative EMFs, negative electromagnetic fields. So you're in there to heal yourself, but in effect, you're also in some cases doing some damage. So Clearlight is the only infrared sauna with no EMF and no ELF exposure. And the saunas come with a 100% lifetime warranty, which means like as long as you're around, your sauna is going to be around, which is incredible. Best thing here is these units start at just $22.95 with free shipping in the USA, which is a really great deal. It's quite competitive pricing, uh, considering they are literally, in my opinion, and I've studied this stuff a lot, the best in the world. So to get hooked up with the best sauna in the world, go to healwithheat.com. And if you mention the code Luke, your old pal Luke here, you get an extra discount and a free gift with purchase. So go to healwithheat.com. Or if you're a phone person, you want to get on the phone with these guys, I encourage you to do that. They have amazing customer service, integrity. It's like a real family kind of vibe over there. They're very cool people. If you want to call them, go to 800-317-5070. Again, mention my name and you're going to get hooked up. Clear Light Saunas, do it. Dr. Andrew Hill is one of the top peak performance coaches in the country. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology and continues to do research on attention and cognitive performance. Dr. Hill is the founder of Peak Brain Institute, host of the Head First podcast with Dr. Hill, lead neuroscientist at True Brain, and lectures at UCLA teaching courses in psychology and neuroscience. Basically, he's one smart son of a gun, and I'm really stoked to sit down with him and get geeky. So let's dig into it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Andrew Hill. Thanks for having me, Luke. Appreciate it. So here we are in your office, and you guys listening, I just had a scan done in my brain using E. EEG? EEG, right? a quantitative EEG, QEEG. Okay, and we learned some information about my brain, and I was so confident coming in here, too, to get this assessment. I was like, oh, I'm going to crush this. I got all like competitive with you know brain health, 
And uh, he came in and kind of, you know, read me my um, readings and he's like, wow, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> I got some negative results, so we're going to go over that and kind of see what's going on with my brain and then talk about neurofeedback and all kinds of things. So uh, give us a little bit of background on you and what you do here. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, which means that I work on the intersection of mind and brain, or essentially uh, I uh, work on ways the brain produces our experience of mind, which are largely human performance things like stress, attention, sleep, uh, and all the things we're really aware of that our brain does. From my perspective, the brain and the mind are the same thing, but the mind is simply the part of the brain that we're aware of, the part that we're experiencing. And so uh, a lot of what I do is try to figure out how the brain is producing these, these human resources of attention, ability to turn our mind off and go to sleep, to manage stress, to manage sustained output, things like that. So we're here in uh, Peak Brain in Culver City. Peak Brain is our new brain for the gym, which has been open for about a year now. Um, and we are trying to take the field of neurofeedback, which is typically or traditionally uh, somewhat medical or psychological. Uh, neurofeedback was discovered in the late 60s, uh, actually here in Los Angeles. And it's been a slow-growing field for the past you know, 50, 60 years. Um, some of that is because it requires a huge amount of knowledge and understanding to really do the work well. You have to be a neuroscientist, you have to be an EEG person, you have to be a psychologist. Um, and so what we're doing with Peak Brain is trying to find a way to scale the process of biofeedback on your brain outside of the medical context. Um, and to that end, we're building uh, Peak Brain Institutes all over the U.S., and they essentially are gyms for your brain. And what I mean by that, it's, it's not that we're having you come in and do computerized batteries of training games. You know, there's a lot of evidence out there now that cognitive training doesn't actually work. Uh, Lumosity was slapped with a, uh, a suit last year because of all their claims they made about what Lumosity was doing to your brain. The short answer is cognitive training games do nothing, as far as we can tell. But neurofeedback is not cognitive training, it's physiology training. We're actually shaping or conditioning the EEG using a form of biofeedback. Essentially, it's operant conditioning, which means uh, for the psychologists who are listening, think Skinner, not uh, Pavlov. This is not a Pavlov's dog, this is uh, Skinner's uh, pigeon trying to peck to get the, the right uh, reward. The only trick is that the behavior we, we're reinforcing uh, in neurofeedback is involuntary behavior, brain waves that are fluctuating very, very rapidly. So the goals of, uh, of the Peak Brain Institutes are to create places for people to come and work on their brain health and to give uh, people access to these somewhat complicated, somewhat high-tech tools of assessing brain activity, figuring out how it works for you, and then giving you ways to change your brain. I mean, sort of our watchword here is that shift happens. And it's your job to decide how your brain is going to shift as opposed to letting the momentum of your stressors and you know, drains on your life affect how your brain responds to things. So having had a little bit of experience myself with neurofeedback, I, of course, don't have any scientific explanation mm -hmm. for that. I want to explain what I tell people. Yeah. I want to give you what I tell please, people please. Um, based on my experience. So I did a one-time session with a doctor in his office and um, essentially was hooked up to the electrodes and, and then was given you know, a screen to look at. And when my brain did things, the screen told me to do things. And yeah. it was sort of like a video game, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And I just did one, and it was recommended that if you really want to have the effects, uh, the desired effects, is that you do a bunch in a row sure. and things like that. But I ended up finding another program called 40 Years of Zen, which I mm -hmm. went and did. And that was uh, seven days. It was five days or seven days. I think it was seven days in a row yeah. where you get locked into a chamber, 
with a screen and like six speakers around your head and you can't have a cell phone. There are no windows. You don't know what time it is. You're literally just like going all night for hours and hours. And the way that I describe it to people is that I'm first looking at a screen doing something called a mood scale and different words pop up on the, on the screen. And it'll say like anger, rage, love, different like emotions and things. And then I just look at that word and then the, the electrodes on my head tell the computer if I'm having some sort of reaction to that word. Right. And then you go out of the mood scales and then you go in and you you look at where you got a sigma, which is like if the word anger came up, I'm sitting there going, I don't feel any anger. I'm yep. in a great mood. Yep. I, I forgive everyone in my whole life. And then the practitioner will be like, nah, nah, we're getting a lot of big spike on anger there. What is it? And then you kind of have to look inside psychologically and see, ah, you know what? My landlord just did this or my babysitter did this or the ex-wife or whatever it is. And then you'll go back in for a, se- a session and start working on specific emotional issues or traumas, yeah, right? Yeah. And then what happens is you're trying to, at least in this in this version of it, I'm sure there's a lot of iterations which we're going to go into, but in this version, you're trying to, manually create an alpha state. You're trying to create alpha waves, right? Brain waves. And so you go in and kind of take an issue and sort of like, for me, my version of it was to create kind of a loving feeling, mm-hmm. not meditating, mm-hmm. but just like a positive emotion and a positive association to create these alpha waves. And then you're in there for, I don't, you don't, actually, I don't know how long you're in there because they, they never tell you. Right, right. It could be four hours per session. It could be 20 minutes. You kind of go into this weird state. And what happens is, Different brain waves that I'm producing produce a different cascade of sounds around these six sure. speakers that are yep. coming out. And I can kind of tell after a while which ones are a theta or beta or alpha, and I kind of have this resonance. And so the way that I interpret it was it's sort of like my brain is producing a signal that the computer's reading. Yes. The computer's sending my brain back that signal mm-hmm. via these sounds. Mm-hmm. And then my consciousness is sort of watching my brain watch itself. Yes. If that, if that makes sense, which is really, it's really hard to explain that. But after a week of doing this and that sleep deprivation and God knows what else, what I ended up getting as a net result, I think, was actually working through a lot of past traumas that I thought I had already gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. And the net result, it's been two years since I did that, is um, an absolutely quantifiable increase in creativity okay like that's the great, net result great. is whatever i was clearing in there yeah um has resulted in an immense amount of creativity to the point where like it's almost frustrating because there aren't enough resources and time to do everything sure, that i think sure of, you know? sure so so that's my background one yeah. quick little session then a pretty intensive session which was its own kind of protocol and i don't yeah think, that's not traditional neurofeedback <laughs> i um, i got the feeling yeah. that it wasn't i found it to be beneficial i would do it again and again yep. if i could afford it it yep. was really really expensive yeah and it's artificially expensive unfortunately and um what you described is half neurofeedback and half just visualization and imagery work and essentially therapy um neurofeedback is a non-voluntary process it is not under your control and thus it's working on the fluctuating brain waves and yes yeah, something happens in the audio or the visuals you feed back to the brain and so when your brain fluctuates in quote unquote the right direction you get some input audio or visual input and in the case of some of these alpha focused protocols whenever your alpha waves go up you get uh, sounds or something happening now 
alpha is an idling frequency, a resting frequency in the brain. So if you close your eyes, the visual cortex in the back of the head goes into alpha, for example. And so I think what they were doing, I'm not very familiar with the, what happens you know, within 40 years of Zen, but from what I've heard, it sounds like what they're doing is essentially visualization slash imagery work to trigger certain emotional states while they're training up alpha to dissolve those states at the same time. It was essentially like you're you're learning how to use your will yeah. to create alpha waves. And you're right, when when you open your eyes, it goes quiet. Yeah. And then you close your eyes and as those alpha waves start again, you have this like symphony of these yep. cascading sounds. But that's not under your control. No matter if it's if it's <laughs> oh, happening, it's I was absolutely working, not under your control. I was trying yeah. so hard, you know, and like I'm, you're going for a good score, you know. Yeah. And so it's like people do that in all forms of neurofeedback. They're trying and they try to get a sense of how to control it. Um, because it's very technological and very mysterious, you think you can. You can't. Uh, you're under no control of your brainwaves in any real conscious way. In fact, the process of neurofeedback in the late 60s was discovered uh, here in Los Angeles uh, at UCLA, was discovered by Barry Sturman um, working on cats. Cats are really bad instruction followers, right? Cats are not trying or competitive with each other about what they're doing. Um, this sort of puts uh, to rest the idea that it's placebo. Cats don't have a placebo response. They're not you know, meeting your own expectations about how their brains should change. So involuntary and not a placebo uh, are two things sort of really demonstrated by the fact that it works on you know, nonverbal animals. It works on people in coma who are not conscious. It works on nonverbal children, you know, autistic kids that are self-stimming and things that have no language. Um, it works no matter on what kind of brain you work on, animal or human. Uh, it's tapping into basic low-level learning. So again, operant conditioning, you know, Skinner, not, not Pavlov. Um, but when you were doing that in the chair, you could have probably gotten all the same experiences with none of the talking and none of the words on the screen if they pushed your brain around in the right direction for you. Um, the biggest problem I have with these short, intense training programs is the brain doesn't change in three, four, five, six, seven days. It takes the brain at least a couple of months to make significant big change. And so I think that uh, you can get an experience doing neurofeedback for seven days. And I mean, to some extent, the way it's set up sounds like a shamanic ordeal. They're, you know, you're, you're, you're being reborn through this experience potentially. And I think that's probably, that psychological context is probably as much of the effect as the actual neurofeedback. And I definitely, like I said, I would do it again. Whatever the case was, I absolutely benefited, and it was amazing. Mm -hmm. However it worked. Um, something that was interesting, though, also that I observed is it's like you're, you're under what seems to be a very powerful lie detector, right? A very uh -huh. sensitive lie detector. And so if there's an issue that I, th I think that I'm over, and I try to tell the computer that I'm over it, I've forgiven them, I'm cool, that doesn't bother me anymore. The computer's like, aha, nope, we still see activity there. You still have this yeah. emotional response Not happening. To it. um, it's not? Not happening. The computer cannot read your emotions. <laughs> okay. The computer has no idea what you're feeling. But, okay, so my brainwaves are not an indication then of whether or not I have some sort of trigger no. in a certain area. Not, not your resting band uh, uh, the, the amplitude of different frequencies, alpha, beta, delta, gamma. You can do some of that work with ERPs, evoked potentials, flashing a stimulus in the screen, seeing an evoked potential in the brain. That's not what you were doing, though. You were just doing typical band or amplitude measurements of alpha, beta, theta, delta, etc. Um, no, the computer does not, the EEG itself does not reflect your emotional state in a way that is measurable. Does it work in the sense of being a lie detector? No. 
How do lie detectors work? They measure physiological arousal okay. under a whole bunch of uh, parameters. Galvanic skin response, which is conductivity or the inverse of conductivity in your skin, heart rate, uh, breathing, respiration rate. And when all those things change together, you go, aha, this person's being duplicitous. But you can, there is no EEG-based lie detector. Oh, interesting. Doesn't exist. Okay, cool. So they were essentially uh, uh, couching what you were doing in terms that made you buy into it more. Interesting. But no, that's not what's happening, unfortunately. Okay. Unfortunately, it's not possible. Okay, no, that's yeah. good to know. That's good to know because you know, when I try and share experiences like that, I just follow my intuition. I follow my gut. Yeah. If something sounds beneficial, there's something valid it. there. But, yeah, I mean, I definitely but, benefited, but it's yeah. also good to know to not give people misinformation when I'm reporting back about a discovery. Like if I come here today and work with you, yeah. I don't want to go home or go on my podcast and misrepresent sure. an understanding of it based on things that aren't actually factual. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you may be describing it exactly how it was represented to you. Right. That doesn't mean it's valid. Yeah. Um, you know, EEG is complicated enough without making it extra mysterious. And there's a rush in the neurofeedback world to make things more complicated, more mysterious, more high-tech, more bells and whistles. But we still get the best results with techniques that haven't changed all that much for 50 years. In fact, you know, we're using much higher technology, much better EEG amps, better software, better video games, better computers. But the work that we're doing today, that most neurofeedback people are doing today, is pretty much exactly the same uh, on balance as the work that was being done 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It, this is tapping into a basic function of the brain. It's not you know, rocket surgery, so to speak. And what does that look like just from a very simplistic point of view? So I walk in here and I say, hey, I have yeah. PTSD or yep. I'm a recovering drug addict or I have some emotional trauma or something that I want to work through. Yeah. What is your system or your process. protocol yeah, yeah what's your process then so we always because when you when you guys are listening you can't see i'm surrounded by computers and wires and you know there's all sorts of things here that are providing data about your brain but if i was to come in and do a classic yeah, yeah. classical in your version neurofeedback session what does that look like yeah so we always start off with with this qeg process the quantitative uh, brain map or the brain assessment and so actually i wouldn't ask you if you had ptsd and i would try to get you not to tell me too much about yourself initially um, this is not how most people work in the field. Most people that work in the field are therapists of some sort, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, nurses, something. And, they, and they, they treat this as if it's an adjunctive therapy, essentially. So they're doing psychotherapy and they bring neurofeedback in, or they're doing sort of uh, you know, brain-based work for head injuries or something. But it's got a medical kind of spin to it. Um, I actually do your brain maps and then usually look over the data and come up with hypotheses about what's happening before I do an interview with somebody. So I would, I would ask you if you had PTSD. I would ask you if you had a history of you know, some of the things that I'm seeing in your brain. And then that helps me avoid over-interpreting the data. So the QEG produces patterns that are unusual against a background population. So we look at your baselines and say... Okay, you're different from some reference population of about 4,000 people. You're different in this way, this way, this way, and this way. And those things often mean X, Y, and Z. And then you tell me how much of that actually makes sense. Um, if we did the other way around, where I, I understood everything you wanted to change, and then I looked at your brain maps, I'd be sort of shoehorning in 
to what I'm seeing, what you already told me. Um, the sort of confirmation bias would be rampant uh, in, that, in that case. So actually, I do a lot of uh, brain mapping and analysis before I talk to the person, typically. And then we sit down and we say, okay, this pattern is probably PTSD, this pattern is probably anxiety, this pattern is probably you know, ADHD. Um, which of these things make sense and which of these things are goals for you? And what doesn't show up? You know, what's, what's not showing up that you want to work on? Uh, because we, we uh, can work from the perspective of remediating deficit. We can also work from the perspective of simply peak performance. And when you're doing peak performance, the brain maps, um, more than identifying what's a goal to go after, identify maybe like, like spots that should be avoided. You know, oh, I see that he's got this spot here, it's XS beta, a little you know, uh, outlier. Maybe I shouldn't train it up there because that would provoke anxiety or provoke some other weird you know, sleep disruption or side effect. But to uh, get back to your, to your question, so folks come in, do a brain map, and then they go sit in front of a computer screen, and we clip you know, three or four wires to their head, usually a couple of ear clips and one on top of your scalp. And then moment to moment, we're measuring the EEG, the brain waves, under those wires. And we parameterize them in software, meaning we say, okay, whenever Luke's theta waves go down and beta waves go up temporarily, that's good, so make something happen out in the world, meaning a spaceship flies faster, or music gets louder, or a Pac-Man eats dots. But your brain's fluctuating moment to moment, as you know, and whenever it happens to move in the wrong direction, which it does the next moment, the game stops. The Pac-Man stalls out. Game meaning that I'm, standing, I'm sitting in front of a computer monitor, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And I'm getting visuals and sounds. Visual or audio, or even, even actually playing a video game, steering a spaceship through a course, and the performance of the ship becomes poor whenever your, let's say, theta goes in the wrong direction, you know, theta rises and beta drops. So we're essentially measuring fluctuating things that are always fluctuating naturally. And whenever they fluctuate in the proper direction, what I've decided is probably a good idea to train, then we kind of give the brain some applause in the, in the form of in increased audio or visual or tactile or some other form of input. Um, it doesn't seem to matter what it is, though. The brain doesn't seem to, to care if it's music getting louder or a puzzle, you know, screen unveiling parts of the puzzle, or a rumble strip, you know, vibrating against your body, or a simple boring beep happening every time your brain moves in the right direction. It doesn't seem to matter. So all of these games and high-end things and beautiful sounds and immersive environments seem to be more about compliance than effect. So are you getting like a little dopamine spike when you're getting your brainwaves to do what you want them to do? Like if I'm getting feedback that I'm getting too much theta and I'm like zoning out or I'm getting too beta and I'm getting anxiety yeah. and I go, Mah! and I, you know, I managed to steer it back toward alpha and then I'm like, ding, 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 you know, a cool thing yeah, happens. Yeah. Is that sort of, am I getting a little you reward are, You are, you in are, absolutely. In fact, all in, in this, in this way, um, you know, choosing from among stimuli, choosing from among similar behaviors in the brain, uh, the brain uses dopamine to choose what's a good thing. You know, if, if a bee goes out and finds a flower, the flower that produced the most nectar gives the bee an extra large dopamine hit. And the next day when it goes out, it expects to find nectar in this flower. If it does, that dopamine's reinforced. And that's essentially what's happening is you're told the beeps, the, the spaceship, the music, whatever it is, happens more when your brain is quote unquote doing well. And so you sit there and wait for it to do well. And then the spaceship flies faster or the, the music sounds and you're like, oh, cool, that's awesome. And so you get a little dopamine surge. But even if you weren't paying attention to it, even if you were simply getting a beep in the background whenever your brain moved in the right direction, your brain would still extract that signal from the environment, figure out that it was tied to its own activity and get a dopamine reward whenever it got the beep. Wow, so your brain is watching itself. Yeah, 
essentially. And it knows that it's watching and, itself. And it knows that that changing environment is itself, which is why it finds that very compelling. You know, parents of kids I train often say, you know, I'm sitting here with my kid. Um, is, it, is it working? You know, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on here. And, and they don't realize that the kid doesn't have to pay attention. They don't have to watch or try. The process, again, is involuntary. Right, because my experience is very much using your will to like, yeah, you know. <laughs> and all you were really doing was setting your expectation for reward. So right. when your brain naturally moved, you didn't make it move. When your brain naturally moved towards alpha or whatever it was, then the reward happened and you were like, oh yeah, I got a reward. Yeah, well, even at the end of a session when I when I had high alpha and I like, I'm always trying to top my alpha score and yeah. you don't want to be competitive because you're, you're trying to get away from ego, not in ego, but you're with a group of people and the scores of everyone is revealed. You're yeah. kind of like, oh yeah, I crushed it. You know, it's like I got the highest alpha score. The problem is too is alpha is a useful frequency to drop into temporarily, but you don't want to have a high high amounts of alpha at a baseline. So high, what, so, high alpha at baseline is called ADD or in, in, <laughs> yeah. inattentive ADHD. Ding ding ding. <laughs> so what? Just for people listening, yeah. so we have a better understanding. What are the different brain waves? Sure. That we can. So play with? let's talk about them from slow through fast. Um, these are Greek letters, and they're actually out of order because they were um, named based on when they were discovered. So the alpha waves were discovered first. They're sort of a very robust wave. They show up when you close your eyes. They're very obvious. And so alpha was discovered first, but it's not the slowest brain wave. The slowest brain wave is called delta. Delta runs from about zero up through about three or four hertz or three or four cycles per second. Um, Delta is a frequency you make a lot of when you're deeply asleep and not dreaming. Delta is also a physiology, if you will, frequency. So delta in the brainstem keeps all the autonomic things in the body running, your lungs, your heart, digestion. That's really, to some extent, a delta phenomena. You don't ever think in delta. You live in delta a little bit, if you will. To that extent, we like to see lots of delta when you're deeply asleep, your eyes are closed. We don't like to see delta when you're wide awake. In fact, delta that shows up when you're wide awake is usually a problem. Uh, and we'll talk about yours uh, in, in a little <laughs> yeah. bit of time. Don't. Um, going up in frequency from delta, the next one is theta. Theta is like four to seven or four to eight hertz. And theta is um, an access frequency. Again, you're not thinking in theta. You're almost receptive a little bit in theta. So when you access a memory or you're creative, it's a theta state. But also uh, excess amounts of baseline theta mean impulsivity. So high theta brain is an ADHD brain. Pure and simple. It's impulsive. It's lack of inhibition. When the frontal lobe is underactive, you have a failure of top-down control. Your mind isn't controlling what's happening in your brain. And then all the other modules in your brain take control. The part that wants to see things or notice things makes your head look around and notice stuff in the environment. And so that failure of the top-down control and the bottom-up taking over, that's essentially a high theta state in the frontal lobe, and that is what we call ADHD. If you're doing, say, a form of transcendental meditation, yeah. right, where you have a mantra, which is essentially the type of meditation I do typically, you have a mantra you're silently repeating to yourself, and you sort of, what I refer to as drop down into this mm-hmm. space where you're not asleep. If somebody yep. was talking, you could still hear them. You're not yep. asleep, but you're not necessarily awake. You're yep. kind of 
what brain waves are typically active in that truly meditative state? Um, alpha and theta, but you can't exactly say it's the same alpha and the same theta it would be normally. Because long-term meditators seem to be able to take functional frequencies. Um, the next frequency up is uh, beta above alpha. So it goes delta, theta, alpha, beta, and then gamma above that. So beta is an active frequency you think in. It looks like long-term meditators have the ability to take beta, which is like 12 to 40 hertz, and, and drag it down in frequency until it's in the theta and alpha range. So they make more amounts of slow frequencies, but it's not the same kind of slow frequency production that you would see in ADHD or impulsivity or sleep disorders or other kind of head injuries. Um, so it's not exactly the same phenomena. In fact, long-term meditators also show many more fast brainwaves, gamma brainwaves. Gamma is like 38 and up. Uh, classic gamma is 38 to 42, but now we know that brainwaves produce gamma up to like 200 hertz and even above that. The problem with gamma, and I think that you got to be really careful uh, in the modern sort of accessible tech world to not be sucked in by marketing language, gamma is not measurable at the scalp with most hardware. You cannot get gamma by, unless you go into the brain, you know, cut the skull open and put an electrode on the surface of the brain. The reason is, is as you go up in frequency from slow through fast brain waves, you go down in amplitude. So delta waves are very, very slow and very, very big. For the same amount of juice, a gamma wave is tiny, but very, very fast. And so um, electricity is uh, fragile to some extent. And the electricity in the brain is being produced behind several layers of tissue from the perspective of the scalp. So you go through different layers of meninges we have, cerebral spinal fluid, the skull, the scalp itself, um, and then you have an electrode on top of the scalp. Every time a wave, uh, electrical burst, goes through a layer of tissue, it's attenuated pretty dramatically. Gamma waves are so small that they're attenuated below the noise floor of the signal almost always with what we call passive electrodes, things you stick onto the head. And the vast majority of EEG out there is passive hardware. Um, you can get active electronics, uh, you know, things that are little amplifiers at the scalp, but those things cost tens of thousands of dollars. There is no chance of measuring scalp gamma using any consumer device or any sort of old school classic EEG headset. Just doesn't happen. And there are tools out there that are being sold to people as if they are training up gamma. They are not. It is uh, uh, false advertising. You know, it's marketing, not it's it's sizzle, not steak. Um, and that <laughs> sizzle, not steak. It's sizzle, not steak. Good. It's 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 uh, all hat, no cattle. Right. Um, you know, there's there's a problem. In I've how never heard either of those. I'm really? totally stealing those. Thank oh. God that I would forget. But thank thankfully it's we're being recorded. recorded so That's right. Yeah, I'm yeah uh, all hat, no cattle is a Texas thing. I think uh, I have a friend who's uh, a Texan and is full of these uh, little you know uh, bon mots, but. Um, when we are looking at the EEG, uh, we think classically often that theta and alpha should go down for executive function and beta should go down when you're anxious. And so you sort of look at the outliers in someone's brain, figure out what they're struggling with. You know, are they not focused enough? Are they too focused? Are they not relaxed enough? Are they too checked out? Are they sleeping too much? Are they sleeping too little? Are they having trouble falling asleep, waking up? And based on the presentation and based on the, the, the brain waves we see at, at the resting baselines, we can see what brain traits they have that are probably supporting the behavior that we'd like to tune. And then from there, we simply start this process of exercising the EEG in a specific direction, 
and see what happens to your behavior. And again, it's not you know, all that different than we were doing it 50 years ago. It's really the same base technology. No matter who you are, no matter what you're doing in neurofeedback, you are using technology that has not changed appreciably in 50 years. What brainwaves are predominant when someone's in the flow state, when someone's yeah. in the zone? That, I mean, I great think that, question. that's the place where a lot of us you yeah. know, entrepreneurs and athletes and creative types want to yeah. be. And that's something I'm always trying to nail down is like, ah, you know, I'll, I have it one day and the next day yeah. I don't. And it's like, it's not it's well very, established. It's very, it's very unpredictable. Yeah, it is. And it'd be great if you could dial it in every day. Um, it's not totally well established what brainwaves it is. There's some research that suggests it is an ability to bring theta up enough, but not too much, while bringing beta itself up higher. And there's some research suggesting it's about something we call alpha 2, not alpha 1. So alpha waves are an idling frequency. But alpha, unfortunately, is at least five different things in the brain. And many people that talk about alpha don't really realize this. There's alpha that shows up when you deactivate cortex, like you close your eyes and the visual system goes into alpha because it has nothing to generate. It's sort of cortical idleness or quiescence. And that's one form of alpha. We also have alpha that's generated by the thalamus. We also have alpha that's generated by the motor strip when we're sitting still. And there's at least two or three other things that are alpha-like, waves called mu waves, waves called SMR, sensory motor rhythm, which is a, a calm motor system, but a very alert and focused mind. So flow state appears to be a combination of good access to this SMR, this 12 to 15 hertz low beta, and that gives you self-control. Instead of being reactive internally, it gives the ability to pull thoughts out very cleanly and almost effortlessly. Um, when we train SMR up in people, we often get what I call the windshield wiper fairy effect. It's like somebody comes by and squeegees your world and the world's crisper and calmer and brighter and clearer and easier to apprehend visually. Um, some of the research on flow states and peak, and peak sort of experience states suggests that this faster form of alpha in the 10 to 12 hertz range is really what people are experiencing when they're in flow state. Um, again, idle alpha or, or quiescent cortex is 7 to 10 hertz roughly. But there's a faster flavor, which is like 10 or 10 to 12 or 10 to 13. And some of the literature looks like it's the ratio of the fast alpha to the slow alpha that seems to be one of the key features in access consciousness or flow states or things like that. Um, and this is analogous to other sort of, we call them bispectral or, or a ratio indices. Um, the theta over beta ratio is an incredibly well-validated marker for ADHD. In fact, in 2012, the FDA approved a diagnostic device, a headset, that diagnoses ADHD simply by measuring uh, the theta-beta ratio at the, at the, on the head. Um, there's other things. That, ratios of frequencies are often very, very telling. Uh, there's a device that's in use in most hospitals in this country, uh, actually many in the world, the developed world, um, but it's made by a company called uh, Aspect Medical. It's called a bispectral index. And with a single forehead electrode pasted onto your head during surgery, they can tell if you're conscious or not. And so this came into most hospitals and, and surgical centers maybe 10 to 15 years ago. Before that, the amount of people that were awake during their surgery or were over-anesthetized and had side effects from that were dramatically higher. And nowadays... An anesthesiologist can glance at a screen and tell if you're conscious or not because it's measuring the ratio of theta and, Gee, and gamma. That's helpful. <laughs> I'd right? Hate, I'd hate to be the person that's in surgery and kind of, but you're not, you know, you don't have the power to be like, hey guys, uh, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm awake. Exactly. So the medical literature oh was God. full of stories like that up until the point someone discovered if you look at the coupling between things like theta and gamma, 
you can measure state of consciousness, depth of consciousness. I wonder what that would look like when someone clinically dies and then has an out-of-body experience. You know, those stories, I've read so many of them. First, mm -hmm. you know, uh, anecdotal accounts where someone's floating in the room. Yeah. They were dead. You know, the, the little graph went flat. Right, and right. then they come back and they're like, you just walked over there, nurse. Doctor, yeah. you just said this to the other doctor. And the doctors are like, what the hell? My guess is that they would still have brain activity. And that the, the uh, OBE, the out-of-body experience, is their brain making sense of what they're perceiving imperfectly. You know, what they're perceiving in their you know, near-death state. Yeah, I've always, uh, always been fast. I have a, a book, I think it's called like, The Big Book of Near-Death Experiences. Yeah. I haven't gotten through the whole thing, but you know, thumbed through it here and there, and it's, it's pretty interesting. You know, I, I have to say, I'm, as a scientist, as a neuroscientist, I'm very much a reductionist. I believe in the brain. Uh, as our experience. I don't believe in uh, a separate uh, self. In fact, I mean, I'm, I'm also Buddhist, and so I don't really believe in the self at all. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Consciousness is somewhat of an illusion, you know? Yeah, a, well, it's a, funny, based on our chat before, it's like you're, and I, I mean yeah. this is the utmost no, no, compliment, sure, sure. you're like the ultra nerd. I mean, you're a very bright guy, obviously, okay. highly educated guy, but you're like, yeah, I do these shamanistic journeys, and sure. I do yoga, and yeah. I'm covered with tattoos, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. You know, you don't, Often sit down with someone who's kind of you know playing in both, both worlds. Those worlds. Yeah. I definitely started off in the more wild, you know, hippie pagan shamanic world for many many years, uh, and you know, became a scientist later to some extent. But on that uh, note, yeah. I had a question in terms of while we're on the brain waves. Yeah, what's going on when someone is on ecstasy, LSD? Yep. Mushrooms, ayahuasca. What's happening to the brain then? Yeah, um, we don't really know. Um, is you can't get someone to sit still. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> with the, there's that. With the, uh, with the electrodes. There's on. also the issue that research into these things has been somewhat discouraged for the past 50 years. Um, you know, the, the government's not terribly excited about people doing research on psychedelics. Um, in fact, I think ecstasy was just brought off the restricted label, uh, uh, research list last year. So, um, and now cannabis, as of like I think in 2016, is the first year that cannabis can be researched outside of like the one production facility the government's maintaining. Um, so there's been a real resistance, and it's really hard to get funding. And in science, your career is this long trajectory of 20 or 30 years of getting funding, writing papers, getting published, doing more research, getting funding, writing papers, doing you know. And if something derails that, if your reputation is impaired, that's it. No more funding, no publications, and your career is very much truncated. In neuroscience or psychology for many years, certain topics become the kiss of death to your career. For a long time, that was consciousness. If you said you were a consciousness researcher, they were considered you some woo-woo you know, charlatan, and that was the last you know, respect you got. Um, when I was applying to grad school, I had to be careful using the word biofeedback or neurofeedback because in you know, 2000, 2001, when I was applying to grad school, that was not, uh, you know, it was considered too fringy, too woo. Um, but I got into UCLA, I, you know, one of the best, actually, uh, usually the best psychology school in the world, you know, usually the first or second one in the rankings. And I got in and I went and somehow uh, three, four years into my PhD program, there was a sea change. And instead of me getting eye rolls when I mentioned neurofeedback, I was having some of the best scientists on campus come and say, oh, you're doing neurofeedback work? Well, I'd love for you to use my task in your experiment. I'm very, very interested in this. And so it got really legitimate all of a sudden in the past few years. Um, I'm not sure why. I have a better sense of why it has not been well adopted over the past 50 years. And that's really because it's not a quick fix. I mean, it is a fix, which is 
remarkable for seizures, migraines, ADHD, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and it can reduce symptoms in things like autism, schizophrenia, et cetera. But it's not like a swallow a pill and be done. Um, you have to go and do neurofeedback you know, three times a week for a few months to make change. And this is the biggest problem I have with those week-long programs because they aren't really able to give you this, the, the, the ability to make change, significant brain change. I mean, when I do three months of training with somebody, I'm doing brain maps, QEEGs, every month or so, and we are watching your brain change. We're seeing the brain, the, the permanent activity, the sort of stable baselines that your brain makes change. You know? See, that's what's exciting to me is being able to legitimately quantify the effects of something, right? Yeah. I mean, having been someone for 20 years, I mean, any kind of healing modality, biohacking technology, meditation, spiritual, not spiritual, I mean, everything, every kind of supplement, nootropic, smart drug I've ever heard of, and just more, 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 more. You know, the addictive tendency has yeah. carried over into positive sure. things, sometimes with negative consequences, mm-hmm. but- you don't really know what's working, you know, yeah, with different yeah. modalities and things like that. So yep. you can, you know, go into an LED, you know, red light bed and you th- you're supposed to increase, you know, the performance yep. of your mitochondria, probably is, but you know, you don't have the money to go actually have right. your mitochondria looked at. And, and so. that's that's what that's why we do brain maps routinely here. Most neurofeedback people don't do repetitive brain maps every month or two. Most people do an intake QEG. And then, you know, these days with technology costs coming down, people are starting to implement post-QEGs more and more. But still, I mean, there's, there's roughly 10,000 practitioners of neurofeedback in the world, and most of them don't have decent, serious, quantitative EEG skills. You know, most of them can read QEG reports, most of them can understand the data, and even gather the data, but the vast majority of them send their data out to a third party. Uh, to process the EEG, to, to write a report, to tell the clinician what's actually happening in the brain mapping. Uh, when we opened up Peak Brain, we decided that that was a potential point of failure in the field, and we, you know, sort of bit the bullet and and invested in all the high end infrastructure, hardware, software, etc., to do QEGs. So now we turn them around in 24 hours, and I have the freedom to say. Brain map time. Uh, you know, I just tell someone to not drink coffee that day, and they come in, and I do, I do a brain map. Yeah, that um, was that was tough. Uh, was for it me? <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I take breaks from coffee. Sometimes I do all decaf. I just like the flavor of coffee um, and the polyphenol benefits and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I followed the rules, and I didn't have coffee yesterday or today. And mm-hmm. it's funny when we when we went over my results. Like, are you sleep deprived? Are you tired? I'm like, yeah. It's like today was actually a day when I really would have loved coffee. So thankfully, I got to have one right after. I That's right. Yeah, we, we we hand you a cup the moment you're done a QEG here. Yeah. So it's a little little. So 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 say someone. Yeah. You know, I'm I go okay. You know, I'm an ex drug addict, for example, which happens to be my case, and I I have a feeling I probably did some damage because I was doing it so young. I mean, yep. really, really young, yep. up until the time I was 26, and maybe there's some negative effects of that, and just trauma in life. You know, just yeah. child abuse, things like that. That yeah. I just know affected me on some level. Sure, Say I want to sure. come in and work on that, and yeah. I commit to okay. You know what? I'm going to come in three days a week. Uh, for however many months um, mm-hmm. it takes, and we're going to look at my EEG monthly and track. And progress. you're going to feel different. I mean, I mean, this isn't like wait and see what happens. Uh, usually, three to five sessions in, 
your brain starts to move. And so by the end of the second week, you're like, whoa, something's happening. And then we figure out if that's the right thing and we adjust the protocols and we gradually, it's iterative. We try something, see how it works, try something else. And usually by the end of the first month, you're making really good progress. You're, you, there's no question in your mind subjectively that it's working. We've started to address the things you care about, be it performance or attention or sleep or something more significant like seizures or migraines or something. And as part of that, extended period versus doing just a hit it and quit it style neurofeedback is part of that going back into the environment, back into one's day-to-day life and experiencing stresses and going to work and relationships and all of that. And then like living a normal life while you're doing it? I don't think so. So it's only happening in here. No, no. I mean, you train your brain for half an hour at a time. And then the effects of that training have to be integrated and learned by your brain. And that takes a day or two. That's so, I think that's what I'm getting yeah. at. Like I'm I'm training it in here, but I'm I'm isolated. There aren't any stressors in here. Yeah. No one's honking at me. But, I'm not- but we're not training your state, we're training your trait. Okay. We're training your resources, not okay. how you feel. So we're building resources over time. And so it does take your brain a day or two to integrate that ask, you know, lower your theta, raise your beta. And sleep is required for consolidation, for, for learning. So you have to, you know, space it out a little bit, get some sleep in. And the biggest reason to take time to do it is because the brain doesn't change very quickly. And you, you can't hit it hard enough in a week to get it to do anything significant. Um, and so what you do is you, you train sort of every other day, and then after a week or two, you're getting change in a specific direction. And you know if that's the right direction or not based on the person's goals. And if it is, great, you continue. If not, you adjust the protocols. And so usually the first month is just getting the brain moving and finding out what's working for, the, for that person. The second month is making those things really reliable, really deep, really accessible. And the third month is sort of finishing off the permanency as well as potentially doing experimental things on like deep creativity or or ridiculous laser-like focus. But you can't do all of those things, those serious performance things, right away on many brains. If you've got some anxiety under the covers or something else that's just, you know, uh, uh, sort of lurking in the background of your mind and you do deep access consciousness work with anxiety, well, guess what you have access to then? Your anxiety is like right in your face and you can't escape it. Or laser-like focus. I could bring your focus up in a couple of days profoundly, but looking at your brain map, I know that would not be an enjoyable experience for you. You would get profoundly anxious if I trained your brain up. Um, because of those sort of hot spots in, in the, the sensory areas for you, there's sort of some anxiety that could be easily triggered if I just ramped, ramped, ramped your attention without uh, thought for how to handle you, you know, managing uh, stimuli. So there has to be a little bit of strategic thought in what you go after first, in the individual you're working with, because you know people have their own individual uh, strengths and weaknesses. And for somebody else, breaking them wide open for deep creative access might be the thing they really need. But for somebody who's got some anxiety, you've got to deal with that first. Or some inattention. Inattention in the brain is an excess of alpha waves. And if you train your alpha up, I could completely make you inattentive. Although uh, we, we did look at your brain map and you already have way more alpha than is uh, probably useful. <laughs> maybe my uh, alpha training was very effective. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I don't think that it was because I don't think you can change the brain in seven days. Right. Um, I think you probably had a little bit of inattentive ADHD or maybe this is a function of smoking way too much weed in the 80s. I don't know. But e, yeah. Yeah. Se- 70s, 80s, and 90s. Well, let's, okay. now would be a good time to, to go ahead and maybe look at what we yeah, found. Yeah, sure. It, it's always interesting to... To um, 
analyze oneself objectively, or at least the physiology. At least the data. Yeah, we have to be careful. This is data, not reality, right? So it's 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 real data, but what it means is a bit uh, coarse or a bit vague. I always tell folks that the QEG process is prognostic versus diagnostic. I'm guessing about what might be true, and then you tell me where it's accurate. All right. So in terms of our guesses about you. We have on the screen a few different uh, head plots that show amplitudes of frequencies like delta, theta, alpha, beta, and high beta. And Luke, you have an excess, a large amount of delta and theta. These are the slowest two brain waves. And normally when I see a delta excess, it means one of two things, uh, or three things really. It means one, you're profoundly sleep deprived, which I think you are sleep deprived. Although you have so much broad delta, I don't really think it's just sleep deprivation. I think something else is going on. Um, the other thing, you often see little focal hot spots of delta when you've had a head injury or concussion. And essentially, you can conceptualize that as the cortex has been bruised or crushed, and now it's not sure what to do because all the connections into that patch of cortex are broken. And so if it's crushed, it's not able to sort of rally its metabolic behavior, and it drops back into the basic brainstem frequency, which is delta, and you still see a little pulsing delta spot on the cortex. Uh, you can also have shear injuries that rip a section of cortex away from surrounding neurons. And then you have little fast, little high beta excesses because it's sort of free running with no inhibitory connections. So but basically my brain looks like I've been an MMA fighter. <laughs> a little bit it does. Or you're sleep deprived, yeah. When you were like, oh, you have really high delta, the first thought I had was like, oh man, I'm like really badass meditator. I'm in yeah, a wakeful no, state. I'm, just, I'm no, chilling. Sorry. It's a negative, okay. It is a negative. Um, God damn it. And because uh, you're sleep deprived, but I didn't see you falling asleep during the recording, I went ahead and took your delta, um, your, your, your brainwave uh, baselines and compared them to a traumatic brain injury database and looked for st- like structural integrity in your brain and tract integrity. And you do not uh, have any evidence, at least statistically on this, on this discriminant, of traumatic brain injuries. And therefore, the excess delta should really be attributed to either sleep deprivation or some other low-level systemic thing like some sort of toxic exposure or something else, you know? Um, if your brain is really ill or damaged, you might see some broad delta excesses that would not show up in uh, uh, tract issues, wouldn't show as a focal injury. And so you have some diffuse, non-specific, non-specific delta excesses. To me, again, that looks like you know, something systemic and probably being enhanced by sleep deprivation. But I was watching your brain when you were recording. You didn't actually fall asleep. And so um, there's something else going on that's accentuating this delta. And it might be wear and tear. It might be some toxic exposure. It might be something else. It's hard to say. One thing that it could be uh, is, because I was tested maybe two years ago, I had really high lead in my body. Oh, okay. You know, so that that's a, a possibility there. It's a possibility, yeah. I've yep. been working on um, some natural means of getting rid of that, but perhaps it hasn't worked. Um, so say we, we have this excess delta and we're going, well, that's not good. Yeah. Say I start right now and I go, I follow the whole protocol yeah. three days a week and we check this out again in a month. Is that yeah. something that you would typically focus on? Like, whoa, let's get this yes. back into balance. Yeah, if, if I could uh, attribute something you cared about to this pattern. Let's say you told me, I mean, if I saw this pattern, I would expect the report of, you know, I hit one or two in the afternoon and I'm just kind of done. Like cognitively, I burn out and I hit a wall at 1 p.m. and there's just no more reserve and don't bother me, don't talk to me. I'm not physically tired, but I don't want to engage with my cognitive effort. That's what I would expect from this pattern. Yeah, about 4.30. Okay. 
So cognitive fatigue, not physical fatigue, but an unwillingness to engage cognitive resources. That's cognitive fatigue. Um, If you said, yes, that's a problem. Yes, I care about that. I would then start to work on this delta to uh, shut it down over time. But you wouldn't necessarily just train the delta to get delta reduction. I would actually train beta up to get delta reduction while I'm training delta down. And probably do a few other things as well uh, to get this delta to move around. But yes, if we remapped you in a month and you got you know 13 sessions in or something, uh, that wouldn't be quite enough time to see dramatic change, but you might get one standard deviation of change, which could take you from severe to you know non-acute. So um, say, I, say I slept tonight like a beast, eight hours, like yeah. deep REM, like great sleep cycle, and I came in tomorrow and took the exact same test. Would you still see that pattern there? I might. I have a hunch that this delta is being accentuated by sleep deprivation, but it's not being created out of nothing. Okay. I mean, it's not broad everywhere. It, there are some focal spots on the, on the temples above each ear. And so my guess is there's a little bit of specific areas that are either damaged or had accumulated toxins or something because it doesn't look purely like a sleep depth kind of delta pattern to me. It might be though, you might have totally clear delta. The theta excess is a little more concerning in terms of like, we can talk about that more. And that essentially is impulsivity, lack of inhibition control. <laughs> and you also get some alpha excess, which is the other flavor. You've been reading my emails. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, I know, I know. Um, so the theta excess that you have is probably some impulsivity. The alpha excess is probably some inattention, some being a little spacey. And you make more theta than the average person, a lot more, three standard deviations more. You only make about two standard deviations of alpha, but the ratio of alpha over beta is also worse than the ratio of theta over beta. So remember earlier I said the theta-beta ratio was heavily validated for ADHD? Your theta-beta ratio is fine. You don't have classic ADHD, but your alpha over beta is a little high, about one and a half standard deviations. And that suggests you're a little inattentive. You know, if this was 30 years ago, you might get an ADD diagnosis. Nowadays, they would say ADHD hyphen PI, primarily inattentive. So you wouldn't come across as hyperactive impulsive. At least I wouldn't expect that on this data. But I wouldn't be surprised if you have a history of being a little bit checked out, a little spacey, a little internally preoccupied, hard to shift into gear mentally every so often. Um, this looks a little inattentive, a little bit, you know, uh, finding, finding first gear might be hard occasionally. So, yes, check. Check, okay. Ding, ding, ding. And then the only other thing that jumps out is we have a few of these little hot spots in beta, the fast frequencies. And um, there's two different hot spots in beta, both in regular beta, quote unquote, so 12 to 20 hertz, and fast beta, like 18 to 40 hertz. Um, and they're both a little excessive, and they're both excessive both in the middle and the back of the head. And the, the beta and the high beta in the middle of the head most likely means sleep issues. So I'm guessing that either you have a difficulty falling asleep or you wake up at the end of every sleep cycle. Every you know, 16 to 90 minutes, you might break through and be like, all right, I'm awake again. One more hour on the clock. Okay, back to sleep. So one of those things true, sleep maintenance or sleep onset issues? Onset, no. I fall asleep radically fast. Okay. But uh, I do, I don't tend to wake up multiple times during the night, but I wake up at times that I'm not ready to get up yet. Like today, that's why I'm sleep deprived. Uh-huh. I woke up at 5 a.m. wide awake, but I went to bed at 11. Oh, okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm not done yet, but yeah. you know, I just had to kind of lay there until six and then I got up and went and worked okay. out. Yeah, that, that, that probably is related to this posterior and, and midline uh, high beta. And that's also one of the anxiety markers that we often see. In fact, both these beta markers that are showing up for you are sort of atypical, non-specific anxiety. 
Um, I'm guessing based on what I'm seeing in, in the data that this beta has a hypervigilance kind of flavor where you're always scanning the environment. You're somebody who probably notices danger before the average person notices threat. Um, I'm guessing that means you had a uh, early life where your brain learned it better damn well stay checked in because the world wasn't entirely safe. Um, and that ends up being something that gets stuck, a pattern, that, a resource that tends to be you know, full throttle and then it's always scanning the environment looking for that danger because it's a survival thing. And those patterns are hard to get rid of without some intervention because they aren't getting in the way of your life, even if they're making you uncomfortable. And I'm assuming now your life isn't fraught with danger um, as a you know, 45 or 6-year-old guy, but the brain doesn't know that. The brain doesn't know that the, the life you have now is less stressful than life you had you know, maybe 30 years ago. And so it has forgotten that it, that it can actually put down that extra energy and extra effort. And those are the kind of things that are so profound when you start training someone's brain. If you can dissolve that overactive you know, vigilance marker, people often feel relaxed for the first time in you know, decades. Or you can get rid of the, uh, the excess midline beta, suddenly you're sleeping straight through the night in this ridiculously restorative, you know, wonderful sleep. Or you can get rid of some of the theta and alpha excesses, and people feel like they've been given a sports car to drive around. Like Everything just works. The brain responds exactly how they ask. I sort of tell folks, it's kind of like you were driving around an old beat-up VW Bug from the 60s, and someone hands you a Tesla. And you're like, oh my god, I love driving. Like you, you will use your mind differently when it responds perfectly when you try to engage it. And so that's really the perspective we have here is figuring out what resource limits you perceive, which of those are showing up in the data, and then how we can take your subjective experience and bring it up a whole nother level by targeting things we think are real in the data and then we come back around every month or two and validate the change we've seen. And just so uh, to sort of uh, put a cap on the way we do uh, work here. Uh, typically, people come for three times a week for about three months. And I do more brain mapping at the very least at the end of the second month and then again at the end of the third month. And in those three months, which is usually about 40 sessions of training, um, we get people to give us usually about two, sometimes more, standard deviations of change. And the efficacy rates for neurofeedback are across type of neurofeedback and across practitioner, well north of three quarters. And for some things like ADHD and anxiety, sleep issues, migraines, for this style of neurofeedback, which is called SMR neurofeedback or alpha-theta, those are two related, related forms, the SMR uh, efficacy for, for ADHD is above 90%, well above 90%. And it tends to eliminate ADHD for good, long term, without the need to train more in about 90% of people. Wow. In three months. That's incredible. Nothing else can change the brain that we know about in that short amount of time. So there's both this, oh, I got to come three times a week for three months and it's expensive kind of perspective. And then there's the perspective of, yeah, but you're going to have a different brain at the end of that time or even part way into that time. I mean, also look at the alternative treatments or... <laughs> Not too exciting. It's true. You know, I mean, drugs with side effects and yeah. God knows what, you know. Um, I mean, I know adults that were given a lot of Ritalin as kids, like guys a bit younger than yeah. I, yep. 10 years younger, that kind of age range. Yep. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it really hurt them. I think it can. The, the literature is not very clear about psychostimulants and risk. There appear to be some risks in the uh, acute side, side effects, appetite suppression, blood pressure risks, um, anxiety provocation, those sorts of things. 
Um, but there doesn't appear to be any well-documented risk on brain development. For a while, there were some papers that were being held up as the you know, best in class that suggested psychostimulant exposure in teens or even younger reduced brain volume in adults. But a lot of that research didn't control for socioeconomic status. Oh, yeah. And once that was sort of corrected for, a lot of those findings went away. And, this, and this, the same studies actually, or similar researchers, found similar things with cannabis, that any exposure in adolescence was going to be damaging. But again, once you control for SES, you end up with no effect, largely. And so as far as we know, you know aggressive drug use, um, prescription or otherwise, doesn't actually do all that much to your brain. <laughs> really? God. Alcohol is another story entirely. Oh. I see acquired alcohol damage patterns all the time. But I almost, I, I very rarely see acquired damage or things that I chalk up to cannabis or heroin or cocaine or something else like That's that. That's so fascinating because having been someone who had a lot of, yeah. you know, illicit drug use bef- well before my brain was done for, was it yeah. around 25, your yeah. brain's kind of cooked and you're not cooked in a bad way, sure, but sure. Yeah, done yeah. developing? You, you finished a large, you actually finished most development by age 10. And then there's this another like 10-year cycle, roughly, um, where things sort of finish off. And in your early 20s, you finish the prefrontal cortex, the self-control uh, part of your brain, essentially. I've, you know, I was uh, using a lot of drugs probably from 10, 11 oh, on. Wow. Yeah. wow. And not just pot. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. do they still call it pot? It's been so long. I don't know. I sound yeah. like an old man. I'm like, what do they call it now? They, Let's call, just call, it, it they call it reefer. They call it, yeah, yeah. I was smoking weed, man. That's right. But, you know, I've worked on my brain a lot because I know that I'm not all there. I'm, yeah. I, you know, I'm a fairly bright guy. I've managed to accomplish a lot in my life, but mm-hmm. I feel that there's more potential there in terms of just cognition and just the yeah. ability to. And, and that's when something like neurofeedback is a great solution or even other things. I mean, Developing a meditation practice for 20 or 30 minutes a day will change your brain in a few weeks. I'm and so glad to it. hear that because I've been meditating for a long, long time. And-, and, and you have actually not only rebuilt some of the damage probably from, from youth, you're sparing yourself age-related cognitive decline. Some, a lot of great work out there by a scientist named Lazar, um, L-A-Z-A-R, and she shows that the typical, not pathological aging, but typical normal aging that results in a loss of cortex in the insula and lateral parts of the frontal lobe, which is largely involved with things like body awareness, balance, feeding behavior. Lazar showed that if you're a long-term meditator, you're completely spared all that cortical thinning. So awesome. And it's you know thousands of hours of meditation lifelong, but the research looking at acute effects of meditation seems to show that 20 minutes a day is plenty for creating the kinds of change we see long term. Yeah, that's about my average. There's times when I do 20 minutes twice a day, but Great. I, I refuse to miss at least that one 20-minute block. Yep. I'm not going to perform in the world in the way that I... Yeah. Could had I not yeah. done that, yep. and I think the world is a better place for that too. You know, it's like <laughs> the world's um, suffering less. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. you know, a better friend, a, a better son, a better brother, a better driver, a better yep. everything. Yep. If yep. I really take that time and get that space, yeah, less less reactive, less less uh, more intention, less momentum. Absolutely, yeah. I wanted to cover one other thing as we um, get close to wrapping up here, and that is the. It's a big topic. We'd probably have to do another uh, show, but while we're on the brain is nootropics and smart drugs, something I've been experimenting Mm -hmm. with for the past few years and have gotten great results with some things, not really noticeable with other things. 
Um, just to see what you have to say in terms of brain performance and just... Yeah, I mean, I am a big fan of nootropics. Uh, you may know that I helped develop the True Brain uh, products, and those were initially my recipes. And then, of course, we refined them and you know, took them up, in, up a level or two with other you know, science and, uh, and research backing. I'm a big believer in nootropics, you know, in sort of cosmetic uh, biochemistry, if you will, on your, on your brain. That being said, I'm very disturbed and dismayed by what's happening in the nootropic field, if you will, or the marketplace. Many things are being called nootropics, which are not. And I also think that there's a push. I think, I think many of the people, not everybody, but many of the people who are using nootropics, they're using it the way drug addicts seek drugs. They're looking for the fix. They're looking for the experience, the subjective drugged experience, the euphoria, or they're looking for a fix to their life in a pill bottle. That's not really going to be successful. And yeah, no, that's not, that's not no. going to work. <laughs> and a lot of the drugs out there that are being called or at least marketed as nootropics have significant side effects or the safety profiles are not well understood. And I think that if you're going to hack your biochemistry, improve your brain through supplements, and you have no massive issues wrong with you, then you really need to, to have a hard line about not taking things that might have side effects. Um, you know, I'm a good example. I before before I created True Brain, the year before, I was in the middle of a grad program, doing a PhD, teaching classes, working a job. You know, full catastrophe living, and you know things were dropping. And I decided, okay, I need a little support here. And I went and got a prescription. And I had taken Adderall and other psychostimulants with not great effects in the past. And so I got some modafinil because. Everyone was talking about how wonderful modafinil was. And I had tried it once before off-label for ADHD and didn't notice much. But I thought, you know, it'd been 20 years, let me try it again. And uh, two weeks into that process, I ended up in the hospital with head-to-toe hives that lasted for weeks. I had to have courses of steroids to bring my, my, my inflammation down. Just about died from modafinil because it caused a histamine response. And then I went digging in the literature and found out that for all of the review papers on modafinil and all the ADHD studies of modafinil, whenever it's used in an ADHD population, the side effect risk goes way, way, way up. And so essentially, we shouldn't be going after things like modafinil as a cognitive enhancer. Now, the unfortunate thing about you know, modafinil as, as the poster child for nootropics, um, because of the result of one particular guy who's a few hours north of here, um, the problem is it's, it's a very weak cognitive enhancer. It doesn't do much. I mean, yes, some people notice it a lot because they're chronically sleep-deprived and being fully awake feels good and feels different. And so that's why they notice it. Unfortunately, it doesn't do very much cognitively. So I'm a much bigger uh, proponent of the gentle but noticeable things like the racetams, like choline classes, like precursors to um, neurotransmitters, dopamine precursors like tyrosine and things like that. So I think you can get a lot further without the risk if you carefully build a regimen of nootropics, but you pick your nootropics off the list of actual things that don't have side effects. And I'm really uh, pretty negative on modafinil, on using psychostimulants as uh, smart drugs, and then... Um, I'm very dismayed by this, this movement these days to find a research chemical that was published in a paper somewhere, send the formula to China, get it manufactured, and then start selling bulk powder of some random compound that we have no idea how it works in the brain. Um, there's a lot of that going on right now in the nootropic field. You know, if you go over Reddit, half the compounds are unlicensed research chemicals that some you know, uh, enterprising young man or woman 
had manufactured, essentially pirate, you know, pirate nootropics, where they just grabbed a formula out of a paper and started having it produced. That concerns me. And I think that's going to blow up in our faces and cause more trouble. I mean, I'm lucky I didn't die from modafinil, but at least modafinil is a prescribed drug. Doctors know what it is. If there's a problem, they might know how to address it. But if somebody's taking some random string of letters and numbers and they have a systemic reaction from it, what's a doctor going to do? That have no idea how to handle it to some extent. So I'm very concerned that in the push towards limitless mindsets, we are um, taking too many risks. So just to define for the listeners a nootropic, um, another yeah. word that's often used is smart drugs, yeah. right? And the the film Limitless is often uh, referenced in terms of you know you take something and you have these magical powers. Yeah, you can do algebra all of a sudden. Right. Um, it seems to be that there are a couple of categories. There's more natural ones that are derived from different herbs and things like that, or amino acids, um, neurotransmitter precursors, things like that. And then there's straight up drugs, yeah. right? Yeah. And I've experimented with all of them. Yeah. And uh, I think for me, probably it's it's funny. Total contrast to you. For well, I agree. The racetams for me, uh, aniracetam is just great just general feeling good that makes sense based productive on it does yeah, yeah yeah these little hot spots of beta the annie's going to drop those aniracetam is very anxiolytic it, it reduces anxiety i love that stuff i mean i take i don't know half a teaspoon of it in my morning smoothie often but if i have to do a lot of public speaking or even during an interview i didn't take any today because i was mm-hmm. i wanted a clean brain sure, coming in sure. here but um peracetam yeah in fairly copious amounts, yeah. just sipping it in my water all day when I'm doing like a long public Verbal speaking. fluency. It's crazy. Yeah, like the, yeah. the recall of words that I have. I mean, I'll listen back to a recording and go, did I say that? You yeah. know, it's like, how was I able to yeah. you know, be, on, be, be that articulate? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's absolutely quantifiable uh, and noticeable. It's, it's definitely subjectively noticeable. It's hard to believe it's not real if you've done it yourself. It's it's sort of this yeah. noticeable effect. So those would be, you know, they're not an herb. I mean, that's a compound that's created in a laboratory. Yeah, but right? paracetam was created from GABA, from the neurotransmitter oh, okay. GABA. It, it was, um, this may be an apocryphal story, but the way uh, I understand it is scientists were looking for more sleep drugs. There is no such thing as a drug that makes you sleep. They don't exist. No sleep meds actually cause sleep. They all cause sort of a hypnotic state. And then if you're overtired, reflexes kick in and you fall asleep, maybe. There are no drugs that trigger sleep. Nothing like that has ever existed. And so that's one of the holy grails for uh, pharmacologists is a sleep med. It turns on the sleep reflex. Um, and they thought, well, GABA is the only universally inhibitory neurotransmitter. Uh, and I know all of your listeners have experienced GABA, uh, the feeling of GABA excess if they've had alcohol, that warm, soft, gentle, calm. That's a GABAergic effect. That's, you're feeling your GABA when you're a couple of drinks in. Um, so these scientists took GABA and modified it, trying to find other things that would act similarly on the GABA receptors to cause sleep. I mean, if you drink four or five or 10 or 15 or 20 alcohol drinks, you have so much GABA, you pass out. And that's what they were trying to accomplish, was turning that GABA switch on. And they failed. The modification of the molecule didn't really affect GABA. And yet, it did this weird thing with attention and learning and neuroprotection. And that was, you know, Prastim was what nootropics were named after. Prastim was the first nootropic. And the qualities of a true nootropic are neuroprotective, and improving some aspect of the mind, learning, memory, concentration, sleep, stress response, and doing so in a way that has no or low side effects. 
And that's not a very large list of, of, of compounds when you have those restrictive criteria. And that's why I think we're getting marketing you know, push to get the smart drugs. I mean, I, I sort of do nootropics as one narrow category and cognitive enhancers as a much larger category, which includes nootropics and also includes smart drugs like Adderall, Ritalin, Modafinil, et cetera. Right, right. And I, I wonder if you know why... Also, one thing that I find very useful for paracetam is if I have an altitude change. Like I always hmm. use it when I fly. Yeah. I, mean, I know the cabin's pressurized, but it's not pressurized to sea level. Sure. You know? Sure. Uh, and I have really like a lot of issues with air travel, huh. so I use it for that, and it seems to help. But especially when I change altitudes, like I'll go visit my dad in Colorado. And I'm just like whizzing up hills. Like I don't notice any difference in terms of the change in altitude. Yeah. I yes, um, we sort of know what's is, happening there. What's up with that? Yeah. I mean, it's it's uncanny. It's I oxygen. Mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm, yeah, everyone like everyone else is out of breath that came from California, and I'm not. I mean, I'm in pretty good shape, but I'm not like an athlete per se. Well, you're not adapted to being ten thousand feet above sea level. Yeah, I and like yet, instantly adapt, yeah. and I'm crushing it. Yeah. So um, one of the things paracetam was used first for, you know, in the in the '60s was post-drowning hypoxia. If you had a near-drowning experience, you have oxygen deprivation in the brain, and that oxygen depth will cause more damage. They gave people paracetam to recover from near-drowning. So it does something to the cell membranes, and it makes them extra flexible and extra slippery and extra sort of reactive. And for whatever reason, this seems to get more oxygen into cells. Ah, okay. There you go. That's cool. So yeah, that's I love it. Doing. I love that one, and I also have experienced, at least that I'm aware of, zero side effects. Like it's very sort of inert in a way. Yeah, it's pretty innocuous. Um, uh, innocuous. Know, yeah, that's the being, word. Yeah. Being being uh, you know involved with True Brain, I hear from a lot of people who take racetams because True Brain capsules have paracetam base, and the drinks are oxyracetam based. Um, and so I hear from people's subjective stories. I, I, there are a certain percentage of people when they take too much paracetam, especially. Um, the most common side effect is a little bit of irritability. That's kind of it. Um, doesn't seem to produce profound side effects in anybody and mild side effects in a very small number of people. So um, True Brain in the capsule format, the way it's formulated, has a large dose of paracetam for the first two weeks, and then it drops to a more typical dose. I think it starts off at 4.8 grams, then it drops to 2.4 grams. Um, and and 4.8 is not a huge amount, because paracetam is one of these things you take in large doses usually. But for some people, they don't necessarily need a loading dose or an attack dose up front. And in those first couple of weeks, they find themselves a little bit irritable, a little bit you know, short-tempered with people. And that's the only sort of, um, and I'm not sure this is a, this is a well-documented side effect, but both from True Brain customers and from just you know, reading Reddits and hearing people talk to me about you know, their own nootropic sort of adventures, um, that seems to be the only sort of semi-reliable side effect you can produce by taking too much racetam is the sense of like irritability, essentially. Interesting. Okay, and then uh, on the last one that you mentioned, yeah. the modafinil. Yeah. Now, I'm very careful about taking mind-altering substances because I don't want to wake the sleeping giant that is, you know, the my addicts, past yeah, issues with yeah, addiction. Yeah. So I would never touch Adderall. I would never do anything that's going to like get yep. you high. So yep. before I started experimenting with modafinil, I mean, I did enough research to be convinced that it can't become addictive. And having been using it for a couple years now myself, 
I would be addictive if it, addicted if it had that potential. Yeah. Just guaranteed. Well, you know, modafinil is used to take people off of cocaine sometimes. Oh, okay, because it breaks cocaine addiction. Because it it has a definite effect, but yeah. it's not a high. And no. I and I forget about it. I'll yeah. forget about it for a couple of weeks and go, oh man, I'm really tired today, and I have stuff to do. Or I use it yep. a lot for air travel. Okay. But here's the thing, and I always give this disclaimer, and it sounds like you had a terribly negative experience yeah. with it, is that. Everyone reacts to that one so differently. I mean, me, the first time I got it, it comes in little 200 milligram tablets. So I was like, well, I'm not going to take a whole one because, you know, it's a drug. I have to be careful. I took half of one. And I was freaking amped. I drove from like LA to Tahoe in six hours. I talked the whole time. I mean, it was like, I felt good. I didn't feel high, but I was very energetic. Even my friends were like, dude, Dude, maybe don't do that anymore. Yeah. You're kind of annoying. Yeah. Uh, although I drove like a Jason Bourne, sure, you know, sure, like sure, I was sure, really sure, on sure. point, very focused. Uh, that was a little too much. It was too stimulating for me. Um, so then I would go to, I guess, 50 milligrams, like a quarter of yep. a tablet. And uh, that's kind of my optimal dose. Okay. But I've had friends that are curious about it. And I tell them, just take a quarter one, like your first time, and just see if it agrees with you. And of course, my idiot friends don't listen. And they're like, screw that, bro. Give me a whole one or a half one. And then they have you know, uh, a great time. Like I got a report from one friend. It was like, oh my God, it was like, the, it was amazing. I felt so good. But then for the day after and the next day after, I was extremely depressed. Yeah. Like a really yeah. negative yeah. side effect where they're like, never again am I touching that, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I've had so many people have different reactions to it. Um, and some people are much more sensitive. You know, some yeah. people a quarter, like I feel a quarter, but I'm, I still feel like myself. I'm yeah. just like a more focused, productive self. And then some people, um, a quarter doesn't do anything. Oh, yeah. I like your air of caution and having had a negative experience. It's like one of those things that just totally depends on your lifestyle, your history, the kind of brain you have, how you want to feel, what your baseline kind of mood is. But I've found it to be like a lifesaver. Maybe it's because I'm sleep deprived more than I realize. And you um, can probably get rid of your sleep deprivation long term with a little bit of neurofeedback and not have to take drugs. Right. Um, you know, I, I think it's a reasonable thing to use for some people. I, it's definitely not for me. Um, and I think that if you have histamine issues, if you've got allergies, if you're ADHD, which might be a histamine-related problem, if you're left-handed, so you have altered brain laterality, any of these conditions where your brain's a little extra sensitive, then I think it's probably not a good thing for you to have. I mean, I, I, I sort of think, and uh, I, I have not seen any literature that suggests this is true, but I have a hunch we're going to discover that that like, intelligent, geeky kind of you know, individual also has a histamine issue. In fact, most of those geeky nerds have allergies, so this trope of the asthmatic, allergic, you know, kind of not a sports guy. That's uh, funny, yeah. I know, know? I know what you mean, yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and that could all be laid at the feet of histamine because histamine's a neurotransmitter. And it's a neurotransmitter that's upstream, if you will, from all the other neurotransmitters, all the classic ones. So when you boost histamine, it boosts dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I have a hunch that people that are already very on and geeky and smart and hyperactive... ADHD, um, are already histamined up you know, pretty high, and a little extra histamine causes sort of a bleed-over effect, and the body reacts to it, which I'm pretty sure is what happened to me. Yeah, that totally makes sense, yeah. I recommend, like, if anyone's to try that, definitely do your research. Uh, but what it's most useful for for me is flying. Yeah. Like, that's my number one jet lag cure. I mean, I, I don't know what I'll do if they make it illegal or hard to get. I'm going to freak out because it's, it's like now I'm used to traveling that way. I get off the plane. I can find my luggage. I can get an Uber. Yep. I feel normal, whereas before that, I mean, it was just... 
is horrific. Yeah. Just traveling is just destroys me. So anyway, um, are there are there a couple like totally natural like herbal cognitive enhancers that you might recommend? Sure, absolutely. You, you feel are yeah. safe and effective for absolutely. people that don't even want to try the racetams. Yep, absolutely. Or um, uh, uh, we actually put a lot of those things in True Brain to maximize its effect. But one example would be uh, L tyrosine. So L is a the left side, the the left hand molecule of the amino acid. Tyrosine is a amino acid that is the precursor to dopamine. So it's not very clear that loading up the dopamine system with raw materials improves dopamine, but I think it might, especially for somebody who's abused stimulants. You know, uh, so I think L-tyrosine might work better to sort of feed that enzymatic chain of manufacture if you've brutalized your dopamine system historically by being on psychostimulants, by you know abusing uh, uh, stimulant drugs or something. Um, so L-tyrosine is potentially very useful. Um, the other big one is L-theanine. So theanine is a naturally occurring compound found in tea, in tea leaves. And tea leaves are actually fairly caffeinated, you know, just about as much caffeine as coffee has for the same volume. But most people don't notice the caffeine in tea the same way because the L-theanine is a GABAergic release. So it has that sort of calm, smooth, GABAergic release where you get a relaxation effect. And so L-theanine is nootropic not because it boosts you, but because it buffers you. If you're over-aroused, it can take the edge off and put your performance back in that zone, you know, that, that Yerkes-Dodgson curve of the inverted U. A little bit of stress is a good thing. A lot of stress is not a good thing. And I think that L-theanine can pull your stress and your over-arousal back into the sweet spot. Um, and I think that a lot of people, their first entree into nootropics is simply L-theanine that they wash down with some coffee. Because then the caffeine in the coffee synergizes with the L-theanine and you get this beautiful sweet spot of calm flow state instead of jittery coffee. That's my jam. I like nice. L-theanine. Yeah, nice. that's, that's good stuff. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, anything else in, in terms of uh, like in, from the herbal world? Um, you know, herbs are complex and... Uh, I, I think that herbs are as powerful as drugs in many cases. And, and just because they're natural doesn't mean they're less dangerous or potentially less side effecty. Um, and so there are plenty of herbs that do lots of things. Ashwangada, um, St. John's wort, bacopa. I mean, these things do lots. Um, uh, bacopa is one I notice in a lot of the kind of nootropic mm -hmm. formulations. That seems to be one that people really like. Yeah, uh, and some of these things affect dopamine and some affect serotonin and you know they're affecting neurotransmitters in a significant way in a similar way to some drugs. I mean, St. John's word essentially is a weak SSRI. Rhodiola is an MAOI inhibitor. Um, you know, these work pretty well for most people, but not everyone. And people can get really bizarre side effects with some of these herbal, if you will. I mean, you take too much St. John's wort, you get SSRI side effects. And you also burn. You, you step out in the sun and you get sunburned. Uh, St. John's wort impairs your ability to uh, mount a melanin response against the sun or it, it provokes a, a stronger response in some way. And so you get sunburns from wow, St. John's wort. That's a weird side effect. I was unaware and of that. And you also lose, you also can lose your vision because the retina becomes extra sensitive to the sun. Wow. Um, in fact, the way they discovered that it has this sun effect was in watching cows get sunburned who were munching on St. John's wort in fields. Oh my God, that's so weird. You know, so... 
these yeah. things just because natural doesn't equal safe. The herbal ones to me are, I mean, I take a few of my, you know, there's your alpha brain, Siltep, um, Bulletproof has one called um, something I can't remember, but they all kind of have the same yeah. sort of, maybe I haven't yeah. had enough smart drugs. Maybe not. <laughs> but they all have like a very similar formula. You know, yeah. all those, uh, there's the other like artichoke, um, yeah, isn't it yeah, right? Uh, for scolin. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. scolin. Yeah. And you know, if you look at the label of all those kind of like, you know, uh, mixes, they're all kind of basically the same. For me, the effects are so subtle. I, yeah. I don't really know. You know, yeah. it's like if I take racetams or I take modafinil, I'm like, okay, I'm at my desk. Let's answer 150 emails in a half an hour. Like I know something's happening. Yep. yep. Or let's like edit photos that have been, you know, I've been collecting for five years, like for yeah. very like focused, intensive um, projects like that. I find that those things are very useful. But with some of the, the herbal ones, like, I don't know. I'm always like, I don't know. Should I take 10 of these and see what happens? Yeah. You know, and I, I, I probably think, not. That's, yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah, that's yeah, probably yeah, the yeah, way yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah. I think, again, it probably just depends on how sensitive you are. You know, some people might take four alpha brain or whatever it is and be like, whoa. So I think it's just something you have to start very slowly with and ramp up to if you're if you're going to experience. Yeah, and the other it. thing about these blends, these mixtures, um, I also have a big problem with proprietary blends. If the la- if your product, if the thing that you bought is obscuring the amounts of each ingredient, throw it away. Um, that's usually a bad marketing ploy on the on the point of companies. They can say proprietary blend, and then microdose the expensive stuff and macrodose the cheap stuff. Totally, or just fill it full of caffeine so you get a subjective effect and think something's happening. Well, that's like a lot of your like you know your super green powders and things like this. I look on the on the um, yeah <clears throat> you know the ingredients and there's 500 things and they're all amazing. But I'm like, really? In one tablespoon, how much am I actually getting of the ashwagandha yeah. or whatever it is Probably, in there? You yeah. know, it's like I'd rather see five really good ingredients mm-hmm. that I know, exactly. you know, how much of each one there is, and a tablespoon of that is going to have like, you know, yeah, exactly. An so, so, so that's my only sort of watch uh, rule of thumb here is, yeah, herbs can be fine, but just because they're natural doesn't mean they're necessarily safe. So be cautious. You know, do your research, figure out what it is you're taking, and two, don't take anything where they obscure the amounts. Because you don't know if you got a great reaction or a bad reaction, you want to be able to replicate that. Yeah, or um, if you're just getting ripped off and you're just buying, you know, you know a yeah. bunch of filler like stearates or whatever. Exactly. Whatever yeah. At, at that point, you are um, uh, uh, sort of s- supplementing or uh, uh, supporting your toilet bowl. More, yeah. m- more than anything else, you know. <laughs> you're buying expensive rice bran to fill up the capsule or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, I think we've covered a lot of good stuff. You know, I, w- I went a little bit over time because I wanted to get your opinion on the nootropics piece, and I'm really glad we're able to cover that. So we got a lot done in terms of yeah, brain definitely. performance and stuff, and it's really neat to get your perspective on neurofeedback, and I think it's really powerful information uh, for people listening, too. So I want to ask you a three-part question okay. in closing. You've taught me so much. You've taught our listeners so much. You've been our teacher for all intents and purposes today. Who have been three teachers or teachings or philosophies that have assisted you to become who you are today? That's a great question. You know, I um, a lot of my neurofeedback and brain knowledge was initially sort of passed on by a guy named Larry Hirschberg, uh, who runs a neurofeedback center in Providence, Rhode Island, um, called the Neurodevelopment Center, which is working a lot with uh, kids who are ADHD and autistic. And I've done a lot of uh, health and human services work with various populations and a lot of work with different developmental populations with kids. And I learned a lot of neurofeedback, a lot of neuroscience from this guy, but I learned more about how to work with um, you know, people who are unusual uh, working in this environment than I probably did any, in any other environment. And I've worked in the most acute psych hospitals in the country, and I've worked in group homes for retarded adults. But working with a skilled clinician 
uh, taught me more about about you know the the uniqueness of impaired people than any other thing I'd probably done. Uh, so that's definitely one. Uh, so three people is that what the or uh, books or philosophies, teachings? You mentioned Buddhism. Yeah. I mean, anything that's impacted yeah, you. Yeah, um, you know, I I I'm not sure if it's impacted me. I mean, when I when I read uh, this is a book by Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield called uh, I don't know, Teachings of the Ancient Masters or something. And it's about, it's a, a series of chapters of different Buddhist uh, teachers describing essentially what meditation is, why to do it, what effects happen. And I read it about 10 years ago. You know, I was like 35 or something. And I remember having the profound experience of realizing this book was published in 1978 and being angry. Being like, why didn't I have this in 1978? My entire life would have been profoundly different if I had gotten some of this information 30 years prior. And so I guess that was too, actually, because you know, uh, Jack Cornfield and, and Joseph Goldstein. But um, it's things like that. You know, I, I, it's, it's not so much that I have had teachers whose paths I've followed in uh, all along. It's more that I've had to find my own path and I've discovered people who are also walking in the same direction or, you know, who gave me a hand up here and there. Um, and uh, I mean, the area that I work in is to some extent fairly novel. I mean, yes, I'm a biohacker. Yes, I'm a human performance specialist. Yes, I'm a shaman. Yes, I'm a you know, neuroscientist. Um, there are a lot of people who are all those things. And therefore, you know, my perspective, if I'm at a UCLA brown bag conference talking about a paper, my perspective is often less rigorous than some of those scientists. And when I'm out, you know, on a mountaintop, uh, you know, hanging out with some Sufis or dancing on a fire, my perspective on this stuff might be more rigorous than some of my friends. Um, and so it's not so much that I've, uh, you know, followed along or been inspired to go after specific things. It's that I've been just encouraged and supported along the way by some of these people. So... Awesome, man. That's great. Thanks. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's yeah, sure. a great perspective. Yeah, I do notice, as I said earlier, you kind of you're kind of have a foot in both worlds here, which is interesting. I like that diversity. It's Thanks. cool. Thanks. And where can people find you and your work? Yeah, so um, always easy to find us uh, on Twitter at uh, Andrew Hill PhD is a great Twitter. I know kids are doing Instagram these days. Uh, we we do have an Instagram. I actually as well. tagged you. I got a photo and I put you on Instagram. Nice. So okay, you guys so can, I have an Instagram as well. You yeah, can yeah. find their page if you look That's at great. mine. You'll see. Yeah. And then um, peakbrainla.com or peakbraininstitute.com is our brain training center, and we have brain training centers now. Peak Brains in LA. We're opening up a big flagship right now in St. Louis, and we have technicians who are trained in the Peak Brain way, delivering our services in San Diego, Portland, Oregon, Boston, uh, Orange County, and more popping up all the time. So, uh, if folks are interested and want to get into the neurofeedback, you know, space and, and technology, I'd love to chat with them. Um, but I'm also just curious to hear what your you know brain quirks and curiosities and. I mean, I learn a lot even talking to people with traditional brains or typical brains, neurotypicals, because everyone's different. You know, you put 15 people in a room who are all, you know, the same height, weight, age, ethnicity, education status, and you have 15 completely different brains. Um, you know, I, I am humbled daily looking at brains and trying to understand what I'm looking at, which is, you know, very little usually, so... Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for having me in today and looking at my brain. Yeah, and let, definitely. And letting me and the audience look inside yours as well. Thanks. Appreciate so until it. next time, we'll check out. Great. Thanks for having me. Okay, so my brain hurts a little bit. How about you? <laughs> that was some deep information. It's so interesting sitting down and talking to someone like Dr. Hill, who's on a deeply intellectual level. Because 
I feel this responsibility to kind of translate that type of teaching and that knowledge to your average person. So hopefully I was able to accomplish that. What I really dig about Andrew though, is that he's also spiritual. He's like a spiritual scientist, which is amazing. So the work he's doing is super fantastic. I'm really excited to support him and what he does. And um, actually after that interview, I made a decision that I'm going to go ahead and go through with his training protocol with the old neurofeedback in his clinic. So I'm pretty stoked. So thanks for joining me on this wild ride into the human mind. The next ride I'd like you to take is over to LukeStory.com, where on my homepage, you will find a little tab that says, join the tribe. Well, listen, you are the tribe. Dr. Andrew's the tribe. Everyone listening is part of this group, okay? What happens when you're in the tribe? What happens is you're on my mailing list. And that means every week, I'm going to send you notification when I put out a new episode, including all of the show notes. So you know all the crazy nerdy stuff that Dr. Andrew and I just mentioned on the show? Well, there's links for all of that stuff that my producer, Tati, faithfully puts together every week just for you, the listener. So get on that newsletter and you're going to get notified every week when we put out something new, including all the show notes, okay? Okay, so find that at lukestory.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and you enjoy those emails and the show notes and the videos and everything that I'm putting out into the world, why don't you give a little something back if you can? And you can find that again at lukestory.com forward slash support. And I'm referring to our donations page. You can go in there and make a pledge for a couple bucks. Help me keep the train on the tracks every week. I would be so appreciative of even a few cents thrown in the bucket. Okay. And if you can't, that's cool. Just keep listening and forward this episode to someone you love. I'd like to remind you that if you want better health, a deeper detox, more powerful sleep, improved athletic performance, and you want to burn the crap out of the calories running around in your body, and you want to burn fat just sitting on your duff, you want to do that in an infrared sauna. And my favorite infrared sauna in the world is, of course, clear light. So you need to get that ass into a clear light sauna. It's one of my top health and fitness hacks in the world. Absolutely, hands down, been doing it for years and years. Now, the awesome thing for you, my listener, is that you get a discount. These units uh, start at $22.95 with free shipping. But if you mention my name, you do a little name dropping here, Hollywood style, you're not only going to get a discount, but you're going to get a free gift. That's right. So here's what you do. Go to healwithheat.com, tell them I sent you, and you're going to get hooked up. If you want to call someone, get some help, get some feedback, great. They're happy to take your call. The number is 800-317-5070. Great company, great customer service, very knowledgeable, informative, and helpful people over there. It's like one big family, and you can join it. Again, go to healwithheat.com. And if you can't afford to get a sauna of your own right now, I just want to recommend that you make this part of your weekly, if not every couple day practice. It's one of the most powerful tools for healing and detox. And I just love to share this information with you. So have a great day and I will be talking to you soon.